Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello and welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia. My name is Rebecca Evans and I am the gallery's curator of decorative arts and design. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that I stand today on Ghana land and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. I have the lovely job today of speaking with uh, the delightful Kirsten Quelo. And we are currently in Gallery 6 um, in the Art Gallery of South Australia. And we are standing in front of a display of works by Kirsten um, that the gallery's collected for over, I think, 15 years of collecting now. Um, and I'd like to welcome Kirsten to the gallery and thank you for taking the opportunity to talk to me today. Rebecca, thank you so much for inviting me today. I'm so honoured and thrilled um, that you've invited me here and that the Art Gallery has chosen to display my work during Sala. It's really wonderful. Thank you. Goes without saying, how could we not display your work? <laughs> um, so Kirsten is the focus artist for Sala, which for those who are unsure of that term, is the South Australian Living Artists Festival. Um, and uh, has a monograph written which will be launched uh, in a couple of weeks. And depending on when the ships come and COVID makes all these things so much more complex than they used to be. And it's been written by Wendy Walker, who's been writing many years. So Wendy knows uh, Kirsten's work incredibly well and I, I'm so excited to get my hands on a copy of the publication soon and, and, and have a good read of it. So we are really hoping that we have, I mean, we have a fantastic offering of Sala uh, displays for 2020. I think it's just timely to have a renewed focus on local. I think that's where people's hearts are. And we're really hoping that these talks, and this is the first of four talks by South Australian artists for as part of Sala, but we're really hoping these displays will uh, lift your spirits and warm your heart and make you feel all the things that we want you to feel around contemporary art. But we thought that we would start this talk by talking about collecting. Um, because we have uh, 15 years of collecting Kirsten's work on display, and it predates me as a curator, and I think it almost predates previous curators <laughs> of decorative arts. Um, would you like to comment on that, about being collected and uh, sort of that legacy of collecting your work? Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Um, uh, Rebecca, um, you know, we were talking yesterday um, about uh, what it means to an artist to have your work collected by a public institution, and it just it just means so much. It it's kind of a changing, pivotal moment in an artist's career. Uh, certainly, I feel that for myself. And when Robert Reason, who was the then um, curator of decorative arts um, for the uh, art gallery. I had an exhibition at Benith and Meadmore BMG Art Gallery and it was in 2006 and Robert bought two works for the gallery and that was my uh, first time my work had come into this collection and I was so honoured and thrilled and oh, I feel a bit um, overwhelmed but um, just talking about it because uh, sadly my mum is no longer here but um, a woman who uh, who has been so supportive of me throughout my adult life, her name is Ida Payne, and when this happened, I rang Ida straight away. I was so excited uh, to tell her, and she was really excited as well. And, yeah, it, it just, it, it really, 
it just means so much. And then for the gallery to get behind an artist and continue to collect their work, you know, it's such a strong validation. And also, you know, I don't, I don't have children, so this, this is what will be here after I'm not here. And, and that also means so much to me as well. And, and also, you know, we're standing in this incredible arena, this incredible gallery here with all this amazing Australian art and so many iconic works that I have always revered and admired. I've been coming to this gallery since I was a child. And to have my work sitting alongside this work is immense. Um, you know, just standing here and we can see Fred Williams' work and Kai Lu's work and Gwyn Hanson Piggott's work and Russell Drysdale's work and, you know, just incredible what, what is surrounding us right now. So, yeah, it, it means the world. <laughs> That's delightful. We should point out that there are three sort of distinct uh, moments, not that these moments capture your entire career, um, but they are three, I guess, distinct bodies of work in this display, and I'd love it if you could speak to those. We've already touched on the uh, 2006 acquisition of uh, 2005 work, um, but if you could maybe just speak briefly to that and the subsequently uh, subsequent two other um, bodies of work that would be... The works that were um, acquired in 2006, um, they came from a body of work, as I said, that was part of a solo exhibition. And there was a lot of, uh, within that body of work, it was a lot of single objects uh, and in a lot of different glaze types. And so the, the two works that Robert acquired in, from that exhibition are singular works, and there's a bowl, and then a ginger jar as well. And both of those works, in a sense, allude to some very tall steel uh, industrial chimneys that are on Grand Junction Road. And uh, one day I was driving down that road and I just, the, the rings of rust and erosion around these chimneys, you know, sometimes you just have these sort of epiphany kind of moments and I saw, I was driving down the road and I saw that and I thought, ah, oh, when I get home I just really want to somehow reinterpret that into a clay object. Um, and that's, how, you know, what resulted in these objects. And then with the uh, works, the oil can and tea can that were acquired in 2012, that extended out of a sort of investigation into the gold fields and the history of the gold fields in Victoria. And also was the beginning of me looking at painting and deriving resource material from paintings. Um, I was very fortunate in 2012 to be the recipient of the Sydney Meyer Award for ceramics. And um, the research and development I did for that body of work uh, came from looking at different Australian paintings that focused on mining in Australia. Uh, and then made a body of work. And I was also very fortunate to have the assistance of Kai Lu. My work was um, exhibited on furniture made by Kai Lu at the Shepparton Art Museum. Um, but these two works were also uh, were exhibited at the Helen Glory Gallery in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, also formed, you know, were part of a larger body of work in that gallery. But it was all extending from that same research uh, in and around Ballarat and Bendigo and Ararat. I've always really loved that living museum in Ballarat called Sovereign Hill, which is sort of quirky, but um, I think 
what really struck me was looking in some of the sort of tents and seeing the combination of objects that were not just Australian objects, but Asian objects, uh, objects from all over the world in this sort of incongruous collection inside a tent. And I think that's when it, I, I first started to think about the way that objects create a narrative of social history and cultural history. That's fantastic. That's where, completely where my heart is with why I work in decorative arts and yeah. design. It's, it's a relationship, not just to art history and design history, but social and cultural yes. histories. And I think that's so powerful to visitors and our audiences because yeah. they have very uh, strong emotional reaction to those kinds of works embedded within their own family histories. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, quite yeah. delightful. Yeah. And more recently, um, we acquired some work from your incredible, and I'm sure a lot of our audiences will remember your body of work for the 2018 Biennial of Australian Art. Uh, could you talk to that? Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Um, yeah, so in 2018, I felt so lucky to be invited to be part of the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, Divided Worlds, which was created by Erica Green. It was just an incredible opportunity to think of an installation in a big space and have all the support of the Biennial and Erica to really think beyond the sort of normal scope of your practice. And so I was able to exhibit 73 porcelain objects within the Jam Factory main gallery space in a completely darkened room on a 14 metre plinth with this wonderful directional lighting provided by Jeff Cobham and Chris Petridis. You know, it was very daunting. It was a very daunting experience and it's such a high public profile exhibition. I was extremely anxious and nervous the whole time. But, but it was so exciting as well to be able to think, you know, I just work at home in my backyard in Ethelton in a shed essentially. So to then think of this theatrical, grand scale uh, work. Oh, it was just such an incredible opportunity. And that's when I first became really kind of, well actually going back a little bit, a year before that I had had, had exhibition at um, Philip Bacon Gallery in Brisbane and in that exhibition I was very lucky they'd put a Russell Drysdale painting, The Drover's Wife hung up next to my work and that sort of got me thinking about the stories. I had also always been quite drawn to that um, Henry Lawson sort of short story I suppose or poem called The Drover's Wife. I mean I think that story is very problematic in terms of Australian history and Indigenous history. There's a lot of problems with that poem but but also I what resonated with me in that story was the story of a woman alone in a cabin in the landscape with her children and there's a snake trap, a, a snake inside the wall that she's waiting to come out and the dog's waiting for it to come out of the wall so that they can get the snake and then, you know, and it just seemed really metaphoric to me about the um, anxieties that can come in the night um, and then how in the next day things can seem better. Um, I'm quite an anxious person <laughs> normally and I, that, that kind of idea really resonated with me and I'm also very, very scared of snakes. So <laughs> It was like a double. But um, that series of work was called Transfigured Night, uh, which is actually um, from a piece, that title comes from a piece of music. My husband's a musician, but um, I thought the title uh, was apt as well in, in that description of that sort of metaphor for anxiety 
Yeah. Absolutely. I think anyone who uh, suffers from anxiety or from you know anxious thoughts, the night time can be a very difficult moment. Yes. And um, we are very lucky. We've also hung our Drysdale in Gallery 6 and you almost get little glimpses of that painting through the ceramics and through the showcase and there's something you know quite powerful about that painting in particular there's a sense of vulnerability of, of the figure there's a sense of, of loneliness you know the landscape and the house behind and we were talking when we were installing the show and I kept saying where is her help yes <laughs> where is where are the men where are the people that are supporting this woman because I bet she has so many children and I bet she yeah. has everything in her house and not only that but she's isolated in this landscape and I think even those um, feelings of vulnerability of being a woman and probably being a mother still very potent and resonate with, with our audiences today. Yes, that's right. And I mean, it's a very interesting depiction, isn't it? That Because it does really evoke a sense of isolation. I mean, there is nothing in the landscape, nothing. You know, there's not even a tree. There's just the building and the woman. So it kind of does locate the woman with a domestic space in a sense. And also, you know, we were talking yesterday that the woman in the painting is quite large. And, you know, I, I read that when the painting was first shown, a lot of women were very unhappy with Drysdale's depiction, um, saying that, you know, they didn't feel that that really represented them. And, you know, and just as you were talking, Rebecca, I wondered whether Drysdale did depict women in that sort of larger-than-life way because of some kind of physicality being metaphoric for some kind of strength or resilience. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we were, t I'm quite a tall, big person, so I kind of identified with that sort of larger physicality of that person. But um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the other painting, The Drover's Wife, there's the one that was at the uh, Philip Bacon Gallery is you know, there's a woman sitting in a chair and I've seen there's a woman standing on a veranda and then there's the iconic drover's wife as well where there's a, a carriage behind the woman. But yes, it's always just the woman. There's no one else around, <laughs> um, yeah, providing assistance. Um, so, you know, in a sense it is an allegory or a narrative about resilience in isolation, I think. Which is, I mean, I can't think of a better word to describe what is all required of us yes. in 2020. Yes. The resilience in isolation. Yes. Um, now, I want, maybe there's a nice connection there. I wanted to talk a little bit about objects and utilitarian objects, thinking about women's spaces in the home um, and things that, you know, create nurture and support women's work, but also everyday objects that we all encounter and required in our everyday lives. Those objects, you know, the echoing through history through those objects is something that comes up time and time again in, in your work. And I'd love to touch on that, maybe some actual objects that you've referenced in, maybe in the Transfigured um, Night series. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, would be fantastic. Yeah, no, thanks, Rebecca. That's a great question because um, when I was working on this series, I did really want to resource or look through what was around me here in South Australia and so I looked quite a lot through the collection of the Art Gallery of South Australia 
And one of the first things that really struck me and always strikes me when I come here are some of the beautiful objects from the Barossa Valley uh, donated by Robert Lyons. And uh, one of the pieces that um, I first started to work with was a colander, uh, which is brown stoneware clay piece uh, with these holes um, and uh, I think it can be seen in the Elder Wing at the moment. It's absolutely such a striking piece, as a, just as a sculptural object. Even if you didn't know that it was a colander, it's, there's something so compelling about it. Um, and so I wanted to make my own interpretation of that and also sort of tie in, you know, often when you drive through a landscape, the things that you see from a domestic space. So I kind of was refer referencing that as well within that sort of colander object that, that's on show in this display. And then I think as well, you know, I remember um, a few years Robert Reason, actually, it was before you came, Rebecca, um, had put a display, which I was really just so captivated. So I think, you know, that's always stayed with me, that, I don't know what the right word is, but the, the sculptural potential of tone, you know, of one tone of work and porcelain and, and also the, um, the sort of duality, I think, that comes from, you know, porcelain has this kind of idea of wealth and um, history and then there's there's also a long history of metal objects um, being replicated in porcelain and then porcelain objects being replicated in metal uh, and so I was trying to talk about all of that within these pieces as well. I think that your work and for many decades now straddled this very big very loaded history of ceramics and the history of utilitarian objects with so much ease, so much ease. I, I don't think I could quite navigate, even in my own curatorial practice, that history uh, I find very overwhelming in itself. Um, but I came across this wonderful quote by Damon Moon, who is a potter himself and a historian of craft and, and ceramics. And he says that Kirsten's work, this is from 2006, objects of simple beauty and unquestionable authority. And I love the word authority to describe your work. And I think that's why they resonate so much because their forms are so familiar and that people see their own lives replicated in, in, in your work. And they feel at ease, but also intrigued and, and drawn into that world. One of the things I've always been, I guess, admired greatly in you, Kirsten, and your work is you, you very openly describe your own personal anxieties as it relates to your practice, and yet you constantly endure a very fraught and at times very nerve-wracking process, and um, I think there's great power and strength, personal strength, um, in, in, in you and your, you know, the way that you deal with navigate this material. I admire that greatly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. I admire your work greatly, and I'm, I'm so thrilled that we have this opportunity to bring out these works from the collection. And I think that um, it's a little, tiny, tiny little taste of, of what you'll be exhibiting later, or new body of work at Samstag. Is it October? Yes. The exhibition opens. Yes. Um, and so I think we can enjoy these and then 
wait and be excited for this new body of work later this year. So we don't just get Kirsten Quaylo for Sana, maybe we get the season. <laughs> a whole year. The season. A whole year. A yearly festival, <laughs> which I think we're all going to delight in. And um, thank you for participating in this talk and taking time out of your schedule. Um, we're delighted to have you here, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca, and thank you for having me today. It's lovely to talk to you.